Welcome to Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast, Obiter Dicta, with me, Gráinne McMahon, and also Rachel Sherlock. On this episode, we're chatting to Nuala Jackson, Barrister at Law, about inheritances, company shareholdings, and family farms in separation and divorce proceedings. Nuala, as you'll know, is a senior counsel specialising in matrimonial and child law, together with education law, pension law and probate. She's chairperson of the Family Lawyers Association of Ireland. She's a board member of the Legal Aid Board and the Personal Injuries Assessment Board. This podcast, unlike others, is more about the technical aspects of family law proceedings. And so, because we want to cover so much ground in this podcast, I hope you don't mind that we're delving straight in. Apologies in advance for any sound quality issues. Nuala, we've had demand from listeners to covering these topics. And one thing that's coming up a lot is how do you deal with company shareholdings in family law proceedings when they're premarital assets? The first thing is that when you talk about shareholdings, um, I suppose they could be they could be divided up into a, a, a hugely significant number of different areas. But when you're talking about shareholdings, I suppose in the context of family law, the first thing you have to know is are you talking about shareholdings where as an investment vehicle, a family owns a bundle of shares in a company in which they are not involved? or a company in which they don't have any particular connection. Um, They're not really the ones that I think you want to focus on here because they're really just a general asset. Um, If you've got quoted shares where um, they hold whatever amount of shares, essentially that's an investment. And in the same way as um, one can argue that um, pre-marital assets should or ought or are treated differently and we'll come to that 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 kind of shareholding um where you have an investment in a particular company is really one that's treated like any other asset i think the type of shareholding that you're talking about here is where essentially you have a shareholding as part of a family business um, the parties operate a family business um, in circumstances where that business is operated through a company structure and that can arise in a multitudinous array of different circumstances. But I suppose what we're really looking at here is the kind of family business uh, where somebody marries into a, a business where one of the spouses holds a shareholding. And I suppose to some huge extent in that regard, the question arises as to how big is the shareholding. Um, If you have a situation where one of the spouses is, for example, the 100% uh, shareholder in what is the family business, um, you may find that um, in the context of separation, um, that asset may significantly be an income generating asset. That may be where his income comes from. He may be the person who is exclusively involved in that company. His wife may not have had any involvement. It may be something that was passed on to him by his parents or other family members. And in that situation, the uh, normal situation would the normal scenario would be that that is essentially an income generating asset. It will obviously be relevant to the question of maintenance. Um, and to, to, to some extent, obviously, that asset also has a value. And where a spouse is looking for their share, 
um, of, of the value, they may well be looking for um, that company to be valued and they may want some sort of capital provision uh, in relation to it. I suppose in that context, uh, the standard, the, 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 the perennial problem of extraction of value from a company. You can have a company that's worth an awful lot of money. You can have a company that's very successful. Um, but the question is, how do you extract money from it? It may have reserves or it may not have reserves. It may have um, a number of its, of its assets may well be invested in plant and machinery or buildings or whatever. And the question then always arises as to how do you value the company, first of all? And then having valued the company, how do you extract that value from the company? Um, because obviously you can't just write a check. The In a, in a, a case of, of a number of years ago called D&D, &D, the Supreme Court made it very clear um, that when you were dealing with that kind of situation, that you had to look at the net position, because obviously there may be multiple, depending on how you do it, and tax advice is, is, is absolutely crucial. But if you're selling an asset within a company, you may well end up with a double tax hit once in relation to disposing of the asset and another time in relation to actually extracting it from the company. Um, so there are various different considerations that have to be given in terms of taking it out. And the Supreme Court has been very clear that you are dealing with net uh, values, what, 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 not, not what they are worth, but what is the after-tax value of those companies, uh, of those assets, of those monies? What is it going to cost to get them out? The cost of getting them out of the company will have to be taken into account. But I think what you're talking about here. Uh, in, in your question in relation to company shareholdings is the kind of situation um, whereby you have a family, there are a number of family members involved in a company, perhaps a number of siblings involved in a company. Um, one of them, they, they may have the same shareholding, maybe two brothers hold something 50-50 as shareholders, or you could have something that is much, much more uh, complex in terms of um, a larger number of family members being involved in circumstances where they have minority shareholdings um, in, in a particular company. And obviously, in many instances, those share, that shareholding in the company may be the most significant family asset that exists. Um, and of course, the reality is that the spouse, um, maybe only one player in the context of the, the family law scenario. So I suppose in terms of dealing with uh, company company assets and company structures in, in family law, there, there isn't really one size fits all. Um, there have been a number of cases in relation to it. Courts have had to deal with it. Um, and I suppose the more usual problem that a court faces in these company situations are two that I've touched on. First is, is, is valuation of shares in a private company um, involves sometimes very, very detailed, um, very complex um, um, accountancy evidence in terms of actually putting a value on the shareholding. Um, that may be, there are obviously various bases upon which you do that. I'm not going to trouble anybody with them 
today. And obviously, if you get into a situation where you're dealing with a minority share shareholding in a particular family business, then obviously the value of that shareholding will attract a um, minority shareholder discount in terms of valuation. Um, so that, that's a very common uh, scenario that a court finds itself in, um, I won't say ample resources cases, but in cases involving generous um, assets being available, that wouldn't be an uncommon thing to, for the court to have to address the issue of shareholder valuations. Other question, again, which I've touched on, that would very commonly arise um, is the whole question of extraction, the cost of extracting an asset. If, if you have assets held in a corporate structure, how exactly do you get about extracting that asset? Um, and what is the cost going to be of extracting that asset? Again, very detailed tax advice required. And again, all of these different situations probably could justify a podcast in their own in their own right. Um, there have been some decisions that are, are, are of interest. I was going to, to refer to a couple of them. Um, there was a very interesting case involving a family company um, in a case called TNT, an unreported decision of Mr. Justice Abbott. And it was a case where um, essentially that there were, it was a family company, and I don't think that the parties held all the shares, but they were definitely far and away the um, majority shareholders in the company. The court had to look at what was it going to do in terms of continuing um, that company going in circumstances where perhaps the extraction of cash in lieu. This all becomes much easier if there are other assets. I mean, obviously, if you've got a company here and it's worth five million and you've got investments there and they're worth 20 million, then in that instance, it becomes a little bit easier insofar as the court can just simply walk away from the, the company and they can give assets in lieu from the other assets. What we're talking about is where, and the more difficult cases are where the company um, very often is the most significant asset. It is going to be the asset with greatest value. Obviously, in the vast majority of cases, the asset of greatest value um, is, um, well, one or other is usually the family home or the pension. In most people's lives, they are their most valuable assets. But in a company situation, if the company is the most valuable asset, um, then obviously then you have to look at getting the court has to examine how is that asset to actually be allocated? How are you to actually transfer that asset and convert bits and pieces of that asset to make provision for the other side? And as I say, that is, is, is less easy if there aren't other assets that you can balance against it. And it is probably fair to say that in a lot of instances, if you do have the other assets, the approach of a court is going to be, look, who actually is the party primarily involved in the day-to-day -day running of this thing? If they are going to continue running this thing, then we'll compensate from other assets. But the question arises, what if there aren't other assets and secondly, what if both parties 
have been really committed workers to this scenario. And that was what happened in the TNT case. And in that case, the court um, made orders uh, to reflect the fact that both parties had been active company participants. But obviously, courts realize that it is in very unique circumstances, and I think probably only in circumstances where parties would have agreed it themselves, that they can continue to both work together on a day-to-day basis where they're both actively involved in the company. And so what can happen, as in the TNT case, is that the orders may can reflect the fact that the relationship between the parties is not such that they can both remain actively involved in the day-to-day running of the company and therefore may involve restrictions um, uh, on alienation of shareholdings. It may involve a transfer of beneficial ownership in shares only where the other party continues to be able to hold the shares, vote the shares, control the shares. Um, and you might well have to have a shareholders agreement which would go in tandem with the court order in order that the uh, there would actually be an agreement as to how those um, uh, shares would be dealt with. There are two cases, uh, there are loads of cases, but there are two that I would just that deal with the question of spouses and shareholdings in a very active, uh, in a very real way. Um, there's the case of MacM and MacM. It's a decision of 2006. There's also the case, uh, there are two B&B decisions, one of 2007, one of 2012. And they're interesting because um, in the MacM and MacM and in the, the um, B&B case, the court actually looked at a buyout over a long number of years. Um, shareholding vested in one of the spouses only. I think in both it was vested in the, the um, husband, I could be wrong. Um, but in MacM and MacM, Abbott J directed the husband to hold a percentage of his shareholding on trust for the wife, imposing a 15-year delay on the a realization um, the company could the husband could control the shareholding from a corporate perspective. Uh, the wife was entitled to dividends or other proceeds arising therefrom as they accrued, but essentially um, there was to be a buyout of her allocation over a number of years. Um, in the BNB case 2007, there was a current illiquidity in the um, husband's assets. The court looked at potential value um, in five years and arrangements in respect of the holding pending the expiry of the envisaged period um, were put in place. So essentially, the court said, we'll allocate a certain amount of, in terms of value to the wife, they will have to, that money will have to be paid to buy them out. But that's not going to be immediate. And she is going to get the benefits that go with the ownership, but not the active control of the company or the voting control of the company. So, again, that, that's the kind of area that you're dealing with. Sometimes the court doesn't do that. And as I say, it's a bit 
subjective to the particular case because in certain cases, you know, it isn't feasible to have people involved uh, together. Um, Again, uh, Judge and Mr. Justice Abbott's 2012 case of PB and AB, he said the partnership family nature of the holding in the company and other corporate entities flowing from it is such that it would be extremely impracticable and counterproductive to insert a separate corporate shareholding for the wife, which despite the most light touch of treatment suggested by counsel for the wife, could represent a destabilizing effect on the whole family business by destroying confidence, encouraging enmity from siblings and their partners, not to mention their children. This would risk a classic family feud, the like of which have notoriously destroyed or seriously challenged businesses historically and down to the most recent times. So the court, particularly in those cases where the spouses don't control the majority. If you're looking at a family business where you've got a number of siblings involved, it may just not be feasible to leave ex-wives, former wives, separated wives involved in the mix. That may be too much. And therefore, what the court will have to do then is have resort to other possibilities. Thanks so much for that, Nuala. That was a real wealth of information. I was wondering then, could we maybe... Uh, talk to you a little bit about um, whether Ireland has a principle of matrimonial versus non-matrimonial assets in family law proceedings. I suppose the short answer to that is no, insofar as we don't have a strict principle of matrimonial versus non-matrimonial assets. We tend to, in, in, in ancillary relief jurisprudence, we very often tend to look at um, equivalent uh, ancillary relief decisions in England. They're not directly comparable, it's fair to say, because we have this concept of proper provision, which is not precisely the same as what is applicable in England. The reality as far as proper provision is concerned, and, and we now have a number of decisions in relation to it, um, there, I mean, for example, there, there, I mean, a, a number of, of decisions. Um, I suppose the Court of Appeal has given us three good decisions in relation to the whole question of proper provision. Um, there is the judgment of Mr. Justice Hogan in the CNC case in 2016, and um, that then was followed up with the um, judgment of. Um, Ms. Justice Irvine, 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 as she then was, uh, in the QR and ST decision. Um, and they are again uh, looked at in the very recent decision of um, Ms. Justice Whelan in the NO and PQ decision. Um, there is no doubt that though that, that trio of Court of Appeal decisions are extremely useful in terms of of family law and in terms of how we deal with different assets. Um, I I suppose to to go back to the question of of matrimonial and non-matrimonial assets, um, on one level, I sometimes think that we're not that far away from where England is, although we've come to it by a very different route. to, to some extent, when you, 
in in the vast majority of cases um, in Ireland, there the assets in order to make proper provision are not such as allow the court the comfort of the matrimonial, non-matrimonial distinction. So in most instances, if you're in a situation whereby, for example, you bought out your parents' house 30 years ago, one party's parents sold them their house, probably, if not at an undervalue, probably at a pretty good rate. Is that or part of it or an element of it? Or indeed, if you were gifted, if you were gifted or inherited your family home um, and you've lived there for whatever length of time, and essentially it is your asset. Your asset is, you know, parties are PAYE income um, and they may have some modest investment and over and above that, one or both of them may have some level of pension. If you're looking at that type of situation where you've got children, very often, usually mother will have modified her life and her work and her opportunities to some extent in order to um, take into account um, child-related issues. In those instances, there really isn't enough to make proper provision and to have the matrimonial asset or non-matrimonial asset come into play. So it really is in ample resources cases that you get into this whole thing of what you brought into the marriage or the origins, the provenance of the different assets. And there is no doubt that if it is possible to make proper provision um, because the resources are sufficiently ample, then the court will have regard to provenance namely the, the whole question of whether the assets came were, were acquired pre-marriage or whether the assets derived from gift or inheritance um, by way of good fortune of one or other of the parties. Um, but but you know that that will be a factor, but essentially it will be trumped by proper provision. If you can't make proper provision without having resort to those assets, then the court will have resort to those assets. It's not easy. Nula, could we go back to the companies? Um, yeah. Because I think that's something that people will be very interested in. And I know you're, you have a big um, experience in this area, particularly when discovery comes up in relation to companies where it might be a separate entity. And would you mind giving us uh, some tips in that area? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it actually is a really interesting area because um, there was a there, there's a great um, English decision where um, effectively they were they, we had a, a commercial court reflecting on an order made by a family law court and in very um, strident terms they were kind of questioning whether family lawyers actually realised that companies were different legal personalities to the people who were the shareholders in them. Of course we do, uh, we do know that but um, having said that um, I suppose we can't afford to be quite as purist perhaps as some of the uh, commercial lawyers when it comes to trying to get our hands on any particular asset. There is a very uh, useful decision of the Irish courts dealing with this area 
Um, that is the decision of SQ and TQ. It's a judgment of Mr. Justice Keane. Um, it um, was handed down in June of 2014. And it's, 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 a, it's an interesting decision because Mr. Justice Keane, in that case, makes a very clear distinction between the situation whereby you're recognising that assets owned by companies are separate assets and the fact that you need, but in family law cases, you do need to know how much the company is worth. You do need to have a good uh, view of that. And in that decision, he goes through the whole question of um, the separate personality of the company. And it, it was a discovery application. And uh, he, uh, paragraph 22 of the decision, in opposing the wife's application, she wanted very detailed corporate disco discovery relating to the company. The husband places great reliance on the separate legal personality of the company. In particular, he submits the leading judgment of Lord um, uh, something in, in the Preston, Preston Resources case, um, represents a persuasive restatement of the law um, in that regard, which should be adopted in this jurisdiction. And the court went on to say, but Preston was looking at the actual ancillary relief application, not the discovery application. And it says, he said, the specific issue that arose in press was not the nature and scope of the powers of the court to order disclosure. And he went on to look at corporate disclosure in the context of family law and indicated that it should be um, that, that the whole question of discovery in the context of uh, family law should be very wide, should be very broad, and that it was important that if um, the company was an asset in the um, uh, in the the proceedings, uh, that it was vital that the wife had a good understanding of what those assets were worth, um, and in order to do that, she would need to have access to the various different documents. Um, it's a really good decision, and it's very clear in relation to um, the wide necessity for discovery. Um, he says, I mean, essentially, he goes at the end of the, the judgment, he says, well, you know, let's let's be clear. If, 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 if the husband, who is clearly there within his procurement, if the husband doesn't give the documents to the wife, she's going to have to go for third party discovery against the company. And that shouldn't, she shouldn't be put to that pressure. Thanks for that, Nula. Could you maybe share with us some practical tips perhaps for practitioners in terms of avoiding getting bogged down when it comes to civil litigation and discovery? It is fair to say that one of the hugely positive things that have has, has come out in family law over the last number of years is that there have been very detailed um, provisions made in the circuit court by statutory instrument um, in the context of case progression. In the high court, uh, in the context of a practice direction, whereby essentially you're told what the minimum vouching is. So in the circuit court, the minimum vouching, uh, you must vouch, you, you swear an affidavit of means, you must give your financial disclosure in relation to that affidavit of means for a year prior to the institution of the proceedings. So 
in most instances, that, 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 that will be sufficient. In most instances, you won't have to go any further than that. Now, obviously, you have to do a year prior and up to the date. So if there is a delay in the proceedings, you may end up that you're vouching for quite a long period of time. And that, that, that's life. But in general, what the court at circuit court level has been saying is you must vouch for a year prior to the institution of proceedings. Now, that's not to say that you're not allowed to get discovery. You are, if you, if you, but you must show that you need it. You must show that the year wasn't sufficient. And in some instances, the year isn't sufficient. And sometimes we're not sceptical enough about that. The reality is if you've got a business person and all you've got is a year of, of financial documentation, a lot of, you know, you could very easily prepare your life for a, a year of disclosure. So you've got a year in the circuit court. If you want more, if you, you must you go for discovery and you have to show that there is a need for it, that it's relevant. Um, and so that does cut it down dramatically. And in the vast majority of cases, you will not need more than that. In the high court, appropriately reflective of the fact that you're dealing with bigger cases, more complicated cases, more complicated financial structures, the time is three years. Practice direction says you must give disclosure for three years prior to the institution of proceedings. You can still get discovery, but again, you must show cause. So the question of needless discovery, in fact, family law probably gets a very much, a, a, a very high mark on that, because what the courts have done is that they have set out, look, this is a baseline minimum, reflective of the complexity of the norm of cases in different jurisdictions. We're not saying you can't get more. If you come in and you tell us you need it, yes, of course you must get more. But this is the, the baseline. And, and, and in the vast majority of cases, that baseline substantially is sufficient. You may have even isolated things that you need to chase back a bit further. Further, In some cases, you may have a, a whole range of things you need to go back further and indeed much further if you're chasing something like, you know, diverted assets into a different name or whatever or into companies or whatever. So you may have need more. But I think we probably get very high marks on that. Thanks again for that. I really think we could we could keep talking about all of these things, but for at least this podcast, we're going to round up. And Nula, normally we usually end with a light round of quick fire questions. However, as we will be having you back on the podcast again soon to discuss other technical topics and, of course, your career, we couldn't let you go without asking at least a few questions. So just two questions here. What is your must-have legal book? My must-have legal book. Well, my must-have legal book in my day-to-day -day life is Kennedy and Maguire. Um, the collection of family law statutes couldn't go anywhere without it. And, of course, the sixth edition is just out. Um, uh, Libby and, and Deirdre clearly used uh, lockdown um, to, to their benefit. My favourite, and, and the, if you, as a distinct one, I'd, never, I'd always have to answer the question I wasn't asked as well. My must-have in terms of the legal book that I like to read is Gerard Hogan's Origins of the Con Irish Constitution, I have to say. And um, the Royal Irish Academy, I'm sorry, it's a, it's not a Bloomsbury book, but the uh, Gerard Hogan's Origins of the Irish Constitution, I have to say. Wonderful. And then finally, um, I was going to ask, uh, what non-legal book are you currently reading or just one that you really loved? At the moment, I tend to be kind of just when I'm kind of sitting beside the bookshelf at home and I pull out something that I kind of think, that's been sitting there forever and I haven't looked at it. And the most recent book of a non-legal variety that I pulled out in that way was actually Tom Parker Bowles' 
The Year of Eating Dangerously, published in 2006. Um, fabulous book. And particularly since we all have to staycation this year, you get a combination of cookery and exotic travel. Well, that sounds fabulous, Nula. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us. Nula, thanks a million. I think that was really useful and I think people will um, find it particularly useful in, in terms of discovery and also the company element of things. Um, we're hoping to have you on again because I think you're such a fountain of knowledge and yeah, I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Obiter Dicta from us, Gronia McMahon and Rachel Sherlock. We've really enjoyed speaking to Nula Jackson, Senior Counsel. We hope it gave you some tips when coming across these cases. We'll chat to you very soon.